Welcome to the Jobs Blow podcast. I'm your host, Brianna Haas, and this is the podcast for dreamers with and without day jobs. As always, I'm so glad to be here sharing more inspiring stories as well as perspectives on surviving life and career before, during, and hopefully after a pandemic. This week's show is called Working on Your Mental Health with singer, songwriter, musician, and author Brett Newski. Brett has performed with the Pixies, Violent Femmes, Courtney Barnett, Manchester Orchestra, Better Than Ezra, and more. He recently released his first illustrated book around breaking the stigma of mental illness called It's Hard to Be a Person, Defeating Anxiety, Surviving the World, and Having More Fun. And this book is accompanied by a soundtrack featuring eight original songs. Welcome to the show, Brett. Hey, Brianna. Thanks for hosting me. Um, first, I just want to address the fabulous backyard that you're coming to me from <laughs> and, yeah. and the teepee that you'll be sleeping in later. There's a teepee in my friend Jeff, the dentist's yard. I'll sleep in the teepee. Um, I crash here every I'm up for the Mile of Music Festival. It's a big music festival up in Appleton. And uh, yeah, every hotel in town is sold out. So I sleep in this teepee. Well, so for the, I did see on your Instagram that you are performing at this festival. So are you performing as your own solo act or with uh, another band or? I've got a band called Brett Newski and the No Tomorrow. So yeah, I started as a, as a musician. That's how I've made my living the past 10 years. Um, you know, I, I do a lot of solo touring. I play a lot of solo gigs, you know, where I tell stories and jokes in between, in between the songs. And then I've got like a, a touring rock band. Um, that and we're active this this weekend, yeah. That's really cool. And how how many years have you done this? Did you? I'm sorry. Did you say that? Well, I've been making. You know, I've been doing music since I was a but a wee man, a little person. And uh, but I've been doing it full time as my only job, like releasing my own records for about coming up on ten years now. So the uh, yeah, the ten hammer, and um, yeah, you know, we travel all over the world in an unmarked white van and uh, play play rock and roll shows it's not a bad deal well as you know this this podcast is about dream jobs and um obviously i love talking to people who are able to make a living doing what they love um and it sounds like that is the case with you so i would love to hear a little bit about your journey um to being a musician how it started and you know bringing us to kind of where you are today yeah, I mean, I was always obsessed with playing music. You know, I would uh, in high school on weekends when like all the kids would go like crush each other in backyard football at, at, at the park and like give each other brain damage. I would usually be hanging out in my parents basement with my buddy Benny P and we would just work on songs and make songs and figure out how to, you know, multi-track record. You know, we were kind of like secret dweebs, I would say. It was like we looked like generic citizens and tried to fly under the radar and not get bullied too hard, which uh, didn't always work, but we certainly weren't cool. We didn't look cool. Um, but uh, yeah, we found a little groove. We would, uh, we would bum rush the music stores before we owned instruments and just sit in the back of the music store and uh, play the guitars for hours. And I think they got pretty pissed at us. Um, but then I got a job at McDonald's to buy my first guitar and I was the Friolator guy. So I worked the Friolator and the, the front register. 
And um, a lot of characters came in there and gave me a hard time, but uh, it was mostly a good time at McDonald's. Was it, would you say if I were to ask you about a job that blew, would that be the one that you would tell me? I wouldn't. I would say I, I thought McDonald's was a great time. I mean, I blew it at McDonald's because I spilled a giant big gulp on the register on on a Saturday at the lunch hour. And the register was an electronic one. So it legitimately started smoking and it exploded, you know, not like a clint eastwood schwarzenegger hollywood explosion it just fizzled out like a like a sad fart um but then the, the driveway the drive-through shut down and the manager actually made me cry this uh this mean old guy named todd and uh todd made me feel really bad about it and i uh i, I cried on the job i was 14 oh no wow you were working at 14 yeah it was good all right so so then talk to me did you go to college or did you just keep pursuing music. Yeah, I went to college. I went to uh, UW-Eau Claire, home of Bon Iver. And then I transferred to UW Matt, uh, University of Wisconsin. And, you know, we had, um, that's kind of where I learned to do everything musically. Cause I would, I, would, I always had college party bands. Like we would play the pubs and the bars and the frat parties. And I learned how to like, you know, manage a band and like promote a gig and like hustle and like do the whole thing, sound check. Um, you know, and we played a lot of shitty gigs, Brianna, but um, it was a great, uh, great training ground to kind of the future world of the School of Hard Knocks of, of music. And what were you playing when you were playing these gigs? What kind of music? Uh, you know, we played a lot of 90s rock and roll, a lot of 90s alternative. We would cover like Weezer songs. We'd do some CCR songs, good drunken bar sing-alongs kind of stuff, you know. And um, it was a weird era for us because, you know, a lot of these quote-unquote venues, they weren't venues necessarily. They were just pubs that would occasionally have music. So you're dealing with people that uh, kind of aren't necessarily hip on the protocol of throwing a live gig it's a lot of bar owners it's a lot of drunk people it's a lot of cocaine addicts that you're trying to get paid from at the end of the night so um there were some there was a few weird run-ins where you know somebody on management wants to fight you and then you don't get paid and um we were always good kids you know we uh once or twice we drank a little bit too much on the job but for the most part um we, uh, we, we went in there and did our job, but um, it's just nice to be touring on the uh, proper music circuit these days because you, uh, you deal with a lot more friendly people. So then in your bio, as I mentioned um, when I introduced you, you've performed with some pretty impressive bands. Uh, how did that come about? Well, you know, I think you just you stick around long enough and, and things just slowly start to happen. Um, I don't know if there's really overnight success anymore. Like there was in the seventies, eighties and nineties where you could play a gig and there would just be some big wig with a guitar in the crowd being like, I want to sign you. And then they would sign you and you would either blow up or they would shelf you and you'd never work again. Um, but now it's just kind of, you know, every, every musician, every artist kind of works for themselves for the most part. And um, it's all tiny victories. You know, I think it's like that with, with most things in life, it's like, you just kind of keep at something and it's kind of about the long burn sticking around, you know, there's always other people retiring, quitting every day. So I think you just be the last person standing and uh, appreciate the small victories and a lot, a lot can come from that, you know? Well, so, 
you were playing in these pubs with a band, right? So when you played for the Pixies, I'm assuming you went in as and just replaced someone. No, no, sorry, I wasn't. I wasn't in the band. The Pixies are like our band would open for them, like su- oh, uh, or okay. support them on a on a fe- on a gig or a club show or a festival or a tour, um, depending on uh, some of those bands you mentioned. We toured with some of them. We we opened for. Um, but yeah, you know, it's like you just get you kind of pay homage to your heroes, you know, and give them shout outs here and there. And um, I've had th- most of them on the podcast at this point, which is crazy. So like, I talked to all my not, I did not mention you do have a podcast. Can you what is it called? Um, it's called Dirt from the Road. So it just started as a bunch of like um, just weird road stories of like when a guy tried to sell me a grenade um, at for $35 between gigs or, you know, when we got blackmailed for our car registration papers in Germany. So there's all this weird stuff that happens on the road. You know, you like ask for a place to stay after a gig in Holland and, um, you know, you wake up on the floor of an attic next to a hairy Irish man doing whippets with no shirt on it. So it's like we wanted to document this stuff before we forgot about it. And, um, the podcast kind of evolved from there. And now we talk about like mental health boosts and, and, uh, just free form, how to, how to kind of survive in the insane world of, uh, being a person operating a meat suit. So when those moments were happening, were you like this job blows or were you always looking at it with a, a, a sense of humor? I was, ama- I was always amazed. Well, a, I didn't realize like absurd things were happening to me on the road early on because there were so many absurd things happening to me, you know? So like when like we're at a McDonald's and like some, you know, the drive through gets robbed while we're in there, it's like, okay, that was, I guess, pretty weird, but uh, you know, it didn't strike you as that strange at the time. And then these things accumulate and you tell people about them later and they're like, that's insane. You should write that down. And that's again, kind of, how the podcast started. And I had a second part to that answer that I've now forgotten. Um, I asked you if you thought the job blew or if you used, uh, had it. Oh, great question. Um, I, I am obsessed with touring and playing music. Like even, especially early on when the novelty is still fresh and you're like, you play a shitty gig in a punk squat in Columbus, Ohio, and you wake up on like a bed of pubes and pizza boxes (laughs) and the, and some kid's basement and you're like still pumped to be doing it that's a very magical time you know so as much of this stuff is can be kind of soul crushing and like filthy and you know we've graduated from a lot of that stuff at this point but i would just you know the worst hospitality the worst sleeping conditions the worst pa systems the crappiest venues like i was always just pumped to be doing it you know so i hope that enthusiasm can persist over the next however many years I'm alive. It's funny to me, Brad, it always seems like whenever someone's telling a story, they use Ohio as an example. And as someone from Ohio, I just, I always get a kick out of this. I love Ohio. It's a stacked state for rock and roll. One of my favorite bands is from there. Um, Jessica Lee Mayfield. Do you know her? Uh-uh. Which part yeah. of Ohio? I think uh, Akron is pretty loaded. Black Keys are from there. Aren't the cars from Cleveland? It's oh yeah, it's pretty stacked. That. Yeah, no. Yeah. Yeah, good. It's it's well, it is the rock and roll capital, isn't it? Cleveland. Yeah, we're we're sister states. You know, I'm just here in Wisconsin, so we got to do more alliances, uh, rock and roll alliances. Agreed. So, 
Um, you know, I mentioned in the beginning about this book that um, you wrote about um, talking about anxiety. So tell me, when did you, I mean, it's interesting how much more open people are with mental illness and I love it. I think it's so important. It's an important conversation. Um, in fact, I always like to share an inspirational quote uh, in the upfront of the show. And I pulled this one and it is, we have to protect our mind and our body rather than just go out there and do what the world wants us to do. And I don't know if you recognize that quote, it's pretty recent, but it's Simone Biles. And, you know, she just recently pulled out of the Olympics um, because mm. of her own mental health issues. And so I just, I think, especially coming out of COVID, it's more, it's become more and more important to talk about. I don't think we fully understand what being locked up in our homes means for really young kids, mm -hmm. you know, teenagers. So, you know, thank you so much for writing this book. I think it's so important and um, really want to hear your journey, how you started to recognize your uh, anxiety, how you dealt with it and how you came to this book. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I've always been a really anxious person, you know, ever since I was a little kid, like I can always remember like being even like in grade school and like, just like paranoid that I like maybe said something that pissed the teacher off and, and now the teacher hated me or whatever, or like I'd be, it'd be Sunday night. I'd be panicking about homework or I'd like wake up in the middle of the night and like go down and check my backpack to make sure I put like a homework assignment in there. So I've always had like some sort of uh, tick, like a little bit of a, like a, I don't know if it's an OCD thing, but yeah, just like a real, real electric anxiety. That's kind of, I haven't really gotten a grip on it until the recent like handful of years, you know? So, um, you know, as you, once you like go to the doctor later on and start talking to people about it, you kind of realize they give you a name for it. They're like, Oh, that's anxiety. Whereas like the first, you know, 25 years of your life, you just kind of like walk around having subtle panic attacks all the time. And you're just like, why do I feel like shit all the time <laughs> or half the time? And uh, yeah, it's a kind of a, a relief, you know, you know how it goes. It's a relief to to know what you're what you're working on, and you can kind of start to to chip away at it. Did they try to medicate you when they finally told you? And if so, did you decide to medicate, or did you find another way to deal with it? Yeah, well, I've I've been on and off medication for that the past maybe like six to eight years. You know, I, I try to not go on it more than like eight months or a year at a time. And I try to wean off it, but it's definitely a great thing to like get you through some of those big troughs, you know, because, you know, you have those life-shaking events or, you know, you hit a, you get up some bad luck a few times in a row and you can really spiral out. And I think it's okay. It's like a, those, those medicines are really magical inventions for those bridge periods to kind of you out of those troughs and, and, you know, get your equilibrium back. So, uh, you know, I think it's, it's great. Um, I don't think you have to feel guilty about, about trying medication. Um, I was having really massive panic attacks and then like really brutal acid reflux in my stomach and into my throat. Cause I was so paranoid of losing my voice. And I'd gone like six or seven doctors that were like, you have to triple your medicine. You're not taking enough PPI acid blockers. And then that never worked. And finally I went to, um, I went to an ENT who 
he's like, you're just anxious, man. You got to try this medicine. If it works, you'll know it's anxiety. And sure enough, he put me on like citalopram and it was full on anxiety, Brianna. Um, and that was a big breakthrough in my head. So was this something that you, I'm not familiar with that drug, but is it something that when you feel anxiety coming on that you take, or is it something that you get up and take every day? It's a daily. Yeah. Um, you know, the stuff like the, um, what is it called? Lorazepam and citalopram. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Lorazepam. Yeah. That stuff works, but it's like, I feel like it makes you more anxious later. You know, you know what? You are right. Like I will take it to fly and I'll feel, uh, look, nothing ever truly calms me down in an airplane. If it starts to like shake or something, Mm. but it it helps calm me just when everything's fine. Um, but I do tend to later in the day feel really, I don't know, hung over almost. And usually when I get where I'm going, I like to have a drink, which does not mix well with it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That stuff can kick your ass. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it certainly mellows you out right away, but you know, it's, you got to pay the fun tax on that stuff, you know? So you're borrowing Zen from later when you take like a, a lorazepam, at least in my experience. Um, and I don't know the the daily stuff seems a little more, um, gets, keeps you on equilibrium a bit more. At least that's how it's worked in my experience. Like the, the Prozac or whatever. Does it, does Brett, do you switch off from it because it also kind of numbs you? I, I mean, I come from my father's bipolar and I mean, obviously mm-hmm. uh, he's uh, the drugs he takes, I'm sure are, are much harder, but I, I'm just familiar with the fact that people say sometimes when you take antidepressants and things like that, you lose, you know, you, you lose some sensations essentially. Yep. Yeah. Big time. I mean, yeah, I tried one that just made me super sleepy and that didn't work. And I switched to one that worked for, you know, a while. And, uh, I've in the last year, I've tried a, a different one Prozac, which, um, I split them in half. So it's like a 10 milligram thing and you, you can't actually split them in half. Cause it's like a, it's like dust in a, in a little pill. So I like open the capsule and then I like dump half on my tongue, which tastes like rancid ass. And then I save the next cap for the next day, but I'm a really sensitive, lightweight person. So I try to do everything in tiny doses. Like I can get hammered off two beers. Oh, wow. And you're in a band. What? Yeah. It's not working. Uh, I'm not, I suck at partying Brianna. Has it always been that way, Brett, or is this with age? Well, you know, when you're in college and you're um, drinking Milwaukee's best at a kegger party, you know, you're training and all you can drink a few <laughs> more things. But now it's like I don't, you know, I don't drink much on the road because I want to I want to do it right and be a pro about it. And I don't want to get the blues the next day and be sluggish and depressed and let yeah. my bandmates down and the people down to come to see our band. So, yeah, I try to I try to not rage anymore, but uh well, when you come to Milwaukee, we'll party it up. Oh, okay. We'll be, we'll be done by 10. Don't worry. Yep. Um, well, and that's the interesting thing about the band life, right? Because later you, people recognize that they may have been suffering for thing, from things like um, bipolar disorder or anxiety or whatever. And it's a lifestyle where you drink so much, which is the worst thing that you can do when you're suffering from those things. You mean like in a, in a road band? 
Yeah. Well, you know, rock, I mean, rock and roll, it's sex, drugs and rock and roll. Right. I mean, it, that's yeah. like, that's like the lifestyle and how many of these. It's bands- not though. It's not. I mean, I think it was, there was this weird window in time where like some radio DJ said that like once sex, drugs and rock and roll, some other journalist thought it sounded cool and then just started typing it and like printing it in papers. And then, and then that became like the ethos for, for, two or three decades didn't really work for anybody you know it's like all those bands they died or they drank themselves into their own shallow grave or partied or their penises fell off from (laughs) having too much unprotected sex or whatever so you know i mean it it, i guess it's amusing to think about but uh, it's never worked for anybody i know and uh the the less uh drugs and and all that stuff you can do as a band the longer you're gonna last and when we meet bands on the road, they are pro as, as all they're as pro as it gets, because, you know, there's, if you want to be a lifer on the road, it's like massively taxing on your brain and body. And most of them have, have quit drinking and smoking and all that stuff, you know? Well, I guess because I grew up with uh, hair bands and Van Halen and Motley Crue, I, I, that's the mindset when I think of people on the road. Rock and roll is not cool like it used to be. It's dweeb rock, which works for us, I guess. But like hip hop is the new rock and roll. Like the, those, those, those cats are partying. And uh, I've had I had a friend manage some pretty big hip hop tours, and it's the stories she told me were just too too insane to even talk about on this pod. I think maybe. <laughs> well, so let's talk about. I know like your book kind of. Um, grew from your doodles that you would do when, you know, you were anxious. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Talk to me about that. So I would just make kind of drawings to make fun of my own anxieties and stuff. It was a catharsis for me. And I just thought it was fun. It was, I was doing it to amuse myself. And then I put them online and people kind of took to them. So they, they kind of caught on and I just got a lot of encouragement to keep going. So I kept going for three years and then had enough for a book. And who came up with the idea that you should create, you should put it in a book. Um, Anna, my ex partner slash best friend slash um, band psychologist, who's probably the greatest thing that ever happened to me. It was her idea initially was to, um, hey, you got to keep going. This could be something, you know, this could be a book. Just keep chugging away. And um, it was a battle. I struggled to finish it for years because I was like too afraid to release it and didn't know how to collect all my thoughts into 200 pages or whatever. But she helped me get it get it all together at the end. Well, and I, I mean... I think when I'm stressed or, I mean, I definitely feel like there have been times in my life, anxiety, I've dealt with some anxiety. I find humor to always be kind of my go-to. So I can appreciate that that was kind of your way of, of dealing with it. Yeah. I mean, humor and satire, I mean, that, that can deflate some anxiety and depression pretty quickly. You know, it's, I think it's why comedians are, uh, generally come from strange childhoods with a lot of depression it's like they they're it's like the the diamond and the under the pressure you know the pressure creates these uh these diamonds and this these next level comedians so it's pretty yeah it works yeah well i actually did stand up and one of the reasons i did it was 
um, to kind of challenge myself. And a lot of what I talked about was what you just talked about. Um, but definitely being backstage, it was probably one of the most insecure groups of people I've ever been around. Mm, yeah, I could see that. Wow. That's, that's cool that you did that. I'm, I'm really impressed. Um, are you still doing sets and stuff? No, I did it, um, back in 98. I'm going to age myself. Um, when I was actually at a job that blew, um, so I, I wanted to, I was just feeling very frustrated in my career. And so I started to do it. And, you know, the thing is as a, a woman, it's such a, it's such a male led, you know, industry. Sure. So, you know, it, there's, you, you have to be careful of what you're talking about. And I actually took a class in the the gentleman that taught the class was all about if you can make people laugh without resorting to sex or cursing, then, you know, you're a true comedian. So that's how we learned. And the first night I went on live, that was what I was about to do. And Wanda Sykes opened for me or went on before me. She did not. Oh, shit. Yeah. So let me tell you when she does not approach humor that way at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we had very different sets, but mine was not completely awful. I survived and I continued to do it. And then I did it again when I turned 30 um, because I had just been laid off and I had a whole new set based on being laid off. So well, yeah. wow. you had a full, you could do a full 25 minutes kind of, uh, no five minutes at the time. Yeah. Oh, still good. I've never been able to do five. So that's, um, it's something I'd love to do someday. I'd love to kick my own ass with a, with a, with bombing on stage comedically. Well, tell me, have you ever bombed on stage? I bomb on purpose. Um, yeah. all the time. You know, I mean, I, I don't think I could ever go up without a guitar. Cause like I basically try to do cheap stand up sometimes, you know, and I can always bail on that and just start into a song. So it's like that sweet parachute to like bail out of the burning plane. But have you bombed as a musician? Like, have you ever had a really bad set? Yeah, totally. Of course. I mean, in college all the time, like <laughs> not a good feeling, like watching the backs of people's heads, you know, clearing yeah. a room on a Tuesday night in Madison. So yeah, I mean, all that stuff happens now. I've, you know, I've played 2000 gigs, um, uh, like as, as a, as a band and as a solo. So I feel like I can do it in my sleep, but where I, where I enjoy taking the risks is like in the banter between songs, you know, it's like, if I'm feeling on, I'll take riskier jokes or tell a Hitler joke at a crowd, I think is a little more Christian or whatever. <laughs> and like, sometimes I'll bomb and, I'm to a point now where I'm just, I have the confidence to just enjoy the bomb. And it's like, I'll lay in my bed at night, just like laughing at how funny some of this shit is. Um, especially when like you get like three laughs, you know, like maybe three and it's, it's especially encouraging when three people are just dying, loving it. And everyone else hates you. I feel, <laughs> I find that to be a good feeling. Would you think that that's um, it doesn't bother you because of age as well? Do you just feel like it would have bothered you at a different time in your life, but you're past that? I think I just spent so much time like in my 20s, like up to age 25, just like worrying about shit and maybe just not having tons of confidence that I've just like I'm over my like worry quota in that arena. So now I now I'm just under the I'm you know, I'm trying to just you know, as Mike Tyson, as the great Mike Tyson once said, 
you know what? It's a it's a fight. So fuck it. Whatever happens, happens. Who cares? You know, like who gives a shit? It's uh, how how much energy do you want to spend like burning calories, worrying? Because you only get so many like you only get so much brain juice to go around, and you can spend all that shit just like worrying on stuff that doesn't even matter. You know. True. So let me ask you, who should buy your book, and what do you hope they take away from it? Kim Jong Un is needs my book immediately. <laughs> Send some copies and a parachute to Pyongyang. I mean, that guy, holy Lord. But I don't know. I mean, you know, it's not for everyone, but it's the idea is just to, you know, even if it makes you feel better in your own brain for 30 minutes, you know, you can laugh at a lot of these really specific worries too. Like I wanted every page to like have some takeaway from it, something that could be useful, like, what to do if someone doesn't respond to your email and you're paranoid they hate you or um, how to relieve stress at work, what to do if you drank too much caffeine, um, how to enter a, a conversation circle, you know, just like, so I wanted to have like useful tips and strategies for, um, for people to use in, in real life to be less anxious. Didn't you also have some for if you run into a shark? Oh, yeah. I'm afraid of swimming in lakes and oceans. So there's a page <laughs> for overcoming that fear. And, you know, it's ham-fisted humor and it's also like utilitarian, useful information. So it's a it's a little bit of both. But tell tell the audience what your because I, I liked your if you run into a shark. Oh, I can't even remember. I don't have the book. And it was like punch, punch him in the face. Or I think the guy one swimming has a karate suit. Yes, on. He's that like, was the one I liked. OK, yeah, yeah. What was it again? I don't, I honestly, I can't remember what I wrote for the copy. Pretend you're a karate master. <laughs> so oh, it was just was, random. Yeah. I can't even remember. Like I haven't even looked at the book cause I'm like, sometimes I'm nervous to look at it. Um, but I, I do crack it open once in a while and, um, it's fun. It's sometimes I crack, I, I crack myself up, which maybe isn't cool to admit, but whatever. Did you self publish Brett? Um, more or less. I mean, I had a buddy help with some stuff who has a small press in Verroca, Wisconsin called, um, uh, Eddie, he's one of my best pals and he's got a, a little press called ramshackle press in Verroca. And then, um, but yeah, I mean, it was mostly a, a DIY effort. Um, we're kind of pondering shopping around for some bigger publishers now because we sold out of the first pressing within like four weeks, which I was pretty surprised and it's like i i haven't really been able to keep up with my like two-person team to um you know the ceiling feels high on this project which is really cool so um, well i mean look you're a podcaster you have a band you, you you've you've got a bit of a name you should probably you should chop it around yeah i need a i think i need a significant other because i'm like working too much maybe or something i don't know but yeah let's shop it um you're hired <laughs> you're officially hired now so you're on the team great we're going places so brett i have to ask um you grew up in wisconsin right yes so you've toured around you've been other places but you always go back to wisconsin why is that wisconsin oh man i mean like we've been really lucky you know we've we've traveled our asses off uh touring on a lot of different continents which is nuts to think about but i always come back to wisconsin and you go to these places and you realize how rad wisconsin is you know how friendly the people are um 
how big of massive alcoholics we are. And no, I'm just kidding. But that is true. That is true. <laughs> we do have a drinking problem, but I think um, the state does rank in the top for alcoholism. We might be number one now. I know we have top thir- or 13 of the top 20 drunkest cities. So you also have that. a lot of a lot of churches because, uh, you know, when I go home to Ohio, it's bar, church, bar, mm. church, a lot of that. Yeah, Wisconsin is kind of Christy, not as Christy as like Indiana or Illinois, but um, yeah, the, you know, it's, but, but it's a swing state. There's a good mix of people. Yeah. You know, I party with uh, uh, right wingers and left wingers every, every weekend at the shows. So there's a cool mix of people. The vaccinated and, and the unvaccinated. Yeah, I guess so. And everybody's pretty friendly up here. And um the state's beautiful. The lake swimming is awesome. The um, the Friday night fish fries are incredible. You know, the, the whiskey old fashioned. So it's a real blue collar state, non pretentious, non hip. And I don't even think um, people realize how, how neat it is. Like the coasts are packed. They're going to start bum rushing Wisconsin soon. Well, you know, some of my favorite people growing up were from Wisconsin. Did they, um, the Cunninghams and Laverne and Shirley. <laughs> Ooh, Mike Cunningham, my high school basketball coach. The Happy Days family. Oh, okay. But nice. you might be too young to recognize those sitcoms. So I missed a lot of those. I mean, you I you through the screen you look like you're 33 years old, but I don't know. Brett, I'll I'll sell that book for you now. <laughs> don't <laughs> worry. <laughs> you're signed. How fun would it be to just walk around town with a clipboard just trying to sign people to like random deals that don't even exist like hey i want to sign you see how many people sign up yeah in new york people do not want you to talk to them with wait, if you have a clipboard like don't even make eye contact <laughs> well thank you so much for coming on um i like to play a game with my guests um before we wrap the show mm-hmm. so i try to tailor them specifically to my guest and so this game is called what's the alternative And I'm going to give you names of band members, and I need you to tell me the band. Mm, Hit me. All right. First up, Kim Kim Gordon, Thurston Moore, and... Sonic Youth. Yes. Well done. Next. I I did some easy ones. Shannon Hoon, Brad Smith, Travis Warren. Ooh, I'm going to bomb on this one. Uh, is it Shannon, a 90s band? Yeah, Shannon Hoon, H-O-O-N. Shit. Um, is it, uh, is it, uh, is he it Bush? O- he overdosed, Shannon Hoon, and he's from Indiana. He was a friend, his sister was a friend with uh, Axl Rose, I believe. And that's how he got his start. Two um, words. Was it Alex Rose? I don't know. Who is it? Blind Melon. Ooh, good band. Yeah. Next, Tom Morello. Rage Against the Machine. Yes. And I honestly haven't really, I never appreciated them until like later in life. And Lounge. Maybe- have you heard of Lounge Against the Machine, the, the, the cheesy jazz album by Richard Cheese? It's all Rage Against the Machine, but the lounge, lounge version. No, I'll have to check that out. But I do appreciate their uh, political stance and it gives me nothing but pleasure when their fans who listen to their music don't listen to the lyrics and then get mad when they're political. All right here. This one might be hard. This, this was a one hit wonder Richard Ashcroft. Ooh, television. No. Um, Oh, Oh, I know this one. Uh, the verve. 
Yes. Bittersweet Symphony. Mm. Um, and last, I don't know this band, and that's why I put it in because I, f- I figured you might, but I don't. Beth Gibbons, Jeff Barrow, Adrian Utley, Dave McDonald. Hmm. Lemonheads? There is a head in the name. Um, uh, uh, mushroom heads? <laughs> Starts with a P. Penis heads. <laughs> Tortoise head? Ah, nice. I was close. You know that band? No, I don't know them. Oh, me neither. So, yeah. I, but I did, I did go to an official list of alternative bands from the 90s. So it has to be real. That's an awesome trivia. I love the 90s. Um, okay. So do you want to share your social channels? Sure. Um, brettnewski.com is kind of the mothership. That's my website. I guess just go there. That's where the book is. And you can bypass bezos.com where they take 40%, but whatever, just do whatever you want. It's all good. So is it on Amazon? You're saying it, but you're not advocating to buy it there. Well, it might be sold out on Amazon. The, the first press, the, there's another pressing coming at the end of August. I have a few copies left through my website. So, so go there. Okay. And you are on Instagram. I saw, right? Yeah. You can, you can find me on Instagram and uh, it's been really fun to do this. What a, what a fun afternoon. Oh, and your podcast, give that hype your podcast. That's called dirt from the road. That's rated like PG 19. Um, But yeah, check that out if you want. No pressure though. And his name again, Brett Newski, N-E-W-S-K-I. I'm Brianna Haas, and this is a Jobs Below podcast. We're at jobsbelowpodcast.com, at jobsbelowpodcast on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you so much for listening, and please subscribe and review. We're always looking for reviews. This Thank pod you. rules. You're an awesome host. Great job. Thank you, Brett, so much. Again, it was so nice to get to know you, and um, best of luck with everything. Thanks, Brianna. See, uh, come to Milwaukee. We'll see you there. Oh, absolutely. If I was inside the door of a payphone that don't work no more, I'd disconnect the dial tone, the sound check of the interludes. Water and don't keep you strong. It works in spurts, but not for long. Your roots, they need some loving on. The soul can be a desert. Only you can grow your garden.